Well, I'm almost embarrassed to be myself this morning, so I can understand if you're embarrassed by the name spoken so frequently. But there is a greater name to which we can turn attention, and we're going to read from Second Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3, and I'm going to read from the beginning of the chapter, and then later on in the chapter and a little bit into chapter 4. And if you're struggling to find Second Timothy in the church Bible, it's on page 1196, page 1196. Paul is writing what is uh, his last extant letter uh, to his young friend Timothy. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And then in verse 10, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Some of you who were students in the 1960s and 1970s at least 
will remember a little book by a man called T.C. Hammond. It was called In Understanding Be Men. T.C. Hammond was an Irish minister, minister in the Church of Ireland. Uh, He went to Australia, became principal of the now famous Moore College there. And some of you will know the name of that college because of Peter Jensen, who was its president and became Archbishop of Sydney, or because you've read books by Graham Goldsworthy, or because you've read books by uh, Peter O'Brien. But in between things, uh, T.C. Hammond led a mission in Dublin called the Irish Mission. And one of the things they did was to get urchins and ragamuffins together and to create a boys' club for them. And in that boys' club, they would teach them the gospel. And they especially taught them in ye olden days to memorize Scripture. And so these little fellows were taught to memorize 100 texts. And this became famous, the 100 texts. Hammond, on one occasion, had a visitation from his bishop, who was altogether unsympathetic to Hammond's zeal for the gospel, unsympathetic to his convictions about Scripture, and unsympathetic to the fact that he was teaching these youngsters to memorize the Bible. And he was very demeaning to him, especially when Hammond said to him, you know these boys… Every single one of these boys knows these 100 verses from the Bible off by heart. And the bishop didn't believe him and demeaned him and said, well, I'll test them. He said, boys, what does Timothy have to say about Scripture? Complete silence. He made a snide remark to Hammond and asked them again, boys, do any of you know what Timothy says about Scripture? Not a hand went up. Boys stood in absolute silence, and he turned and demeaned Hammond again. And this so irritated one of the little boys, he put his hand up, and he said, sir, Timothy doesn't say anything about Scripture. But Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, And verse 16, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, that the man of God, he was using the authorized version, may be fully furnished for every good work. And the bishop, thankfully, had to slink away into his episcopal obscurity. (laughs) And the name of Hammond lives on, even although the little urchin remains anonymous. And that's what we're going to focus on for a few minutes together this morning. It's a fascinating thing, actually, when you think about it, that every Sunday morning and evening, the preaching in our churches from the Bible but the preaching in the church is very rarely about the Bible. 
And the reason for that is there, there are only a number of passages in the Bible in which the Bible itself reflects on what Scripture is and what Scripture is for. And these verses are obviously one of those sections. And they appear in a, in a very interesting and important dual context. The first is this. This is the great transition period from the first apostolic age, when if you had a problem, you could actually write to an apostle and ask the apostle to give you direction. The apostles had been uh, prepared by Jesus to lead and guide the church. So, one of the things that Paul is concerned about is that Timothy knows where to go when he cannot write to an apostle, or certainly cannot write to an apostle and expect an answer. And so, in this letter, he has been building up, emphasizing the importance of the truth, emphasizing the importance of what the apostles have taught, and now wants to stress to Timothy the importance of the Scriptures. Because Paul understands, as could be easily shown if we had time, that the place where God's revelation is to be found is in the Scriptures. And it is to the Scriptures that the whole church of the future needs to turn in order to discover the mind and will and wisdom of God. But then you'll notice right at the beginning of the chapter, he says, in the future days, what he calls the last days, which are not the days at the end of history, but the days between the day of Pentecost and the end of history, that is, we're living in these last days. But within these last days, there will be particular times of stress. In my translation here, understand this, that in this long stretch of the last days, there will come particular times of stress or difficulty or pressure. Uh, the, the word he uses here is the word that's used in Matthew's gospel about the Gadarene demoniacs who were uncontrollable. And he's talking about seasons that he anticipates coming in the life of the Christian church when such pressures will be brought upon the church that uh, it looks as though there are forces seeking to destroy it. And Christians will feel it isn't easy to be a Christian in these days. And he describes what these days are like. Um, and it's almost like the headlines in many of the newspapers. And of course, there are therefore many Christians who would feel today that we might be living… Yes, we, we've been living in the last days for a long time, but that we are living in the West in a day as Christians have experienced in other parts of the world where there is enormous pressure on Christians to be silent, to conform, to get with the program, and it's a time then, as is described here, 
for many Christians who view it as a time of difficulty. It's marked by the rejection of gospel truth, the rejection of faith, the rejection of the teaching of the Scriptures. And it's interesting that it's just then when the gospel seems to be under that pressure, when the teaching of the Scriptures is demeaned, that the Apostle Paul points us back to the Scriptures. And I want us to notice four things if we have time, only one thing if we've got time, that he has to say about these Scriptures. The first, and, and in a way the most obvious, is what he says about the inspiration of Scripture, or at least what we call the inspiration of Scripture, but if you're using an NIV or, as I am, an ESV, then the translation will speak about the God-breathed character of Scripture. If it weren't for the fact that the word already means something different, we would speak not about the inspiration of Scripture. It's not that God breathes into the Scriptures. We would speak about the expiration of Scripture. That is to say that God breathes out the Scriptures. Remember how Hebrews 1, verse 1 following, speaks about this. Many different ways throughout the ages, God breathed out His Word through the prophets, through the teachers, sometimes in visions, sometimes by the research that they did, sometimes by direct revelations. But what Paul is saying here is that the Scriptures come to us just like the words you are hearing just now come to you carried on the breath of their original speaker. And he's saying this is how we should think about the Scriptures. He means, of course, the Old Testament Scriptures, but already in this period, in Paul's writings, it's very clear that he understood that, that there were there were new books being added to the Scriptures. Indeed, later on, Peter will say at the end of his second letter, he'll talk about Paul's letters and other Scriptures. So, there is this tremendous consciousness in the apostles that one of the reasons Christ has called them to their ministry is because God is going to continue through them to give His Word. It will be carried on His breath to the church. And in a day when the gospel is being demeaned, you'll notice that Paul is emphasizing the importance of the gospel and the Scriptures. And of course, this view of the Bible is exactly the view that Jesus had. How do we know how Jesus thought about the Bible? Because the first time we know, He quoted it. Remember, in response to the first temptation to turn stones into bread, do you remember how He described His Bible? He said, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So, that's how Paul thinks about the Bible. It's the words breathed out by God, but uh, behind that, that's the way Jesus thought about 
his Bible. That's why, actually, Jesus listened to his Bible. That's why Jesus memorized his Bible. There are not too many of us, when tempted by Satan, throw great chunks of the book of Deuteronomy back at him. How was Jesus able to do that? Because he believed that every word that was in his Hebrew Bible had been breathed out by God. And I'm pretty sure he sought to memorize every single one of them because he understood these were the words of his heavenly Father. Because the Scriptures are breathed out by God, we can trust them for their reliability. And because in them God speaks, God speaks, we yield our lives to their authority. We trust and obey because there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. So, he anchors what he says in the inspiration of Scripture. I want you to notice that when you read a passage in Scripture, actually when you read anything anywhere, there is an order in the sentences, but there is also an order to the logic that expresses itself in the sentences, and those are not necessarily the same thing. What we want to follow here is not just the order in which the sentences come to us, but the logic in Paul's mind that helps us to understand why he is saying what he's saying. And the foundation of that logic is the nature of the Bible. The nature of the Bible is that it is breathed out by God. And so we begin with what he says about the inspiration of Scripture. Then I want you to notice what he has to say about the function of Scripture. And actually, he's, he's really as interested in how the Bible works in this passage as what the Bible is. So, how does the Bible work? Notice the language he uses. He says it's breathed out by God and it is useful or profitable. So, what's the Bible for? Well, he tells us it's for these things, first of all, to teach us. Why do we need the Bible to teach us? Because we are spiritually blind. Because we think that we reason properly but our reasoning has been perverted by our sinfulness. And so, what we need because of our sinfulness is for God to teach us the truth so that we see things clearly, so that we are brought round to see reality from His point of view and not from our own point of view. And that's why it's so important for us to saturate our minds in the thinking of Scripture. So, the Scriptures are useful for teaching us. Then, says Paul, the Scriptures are useful for reproving us. That is to say, the teaching of the Scripture touches our conscience. 
It teaches us the truth about God, about the world, about ourselves, and because of that, it touches our conscience, and it reproves us. But then it does a third thing. It says, Paul, it not only reproves us, but marvelously, it brings correction. Now, intuitively, when I see the word correction, I think about my primary school teacher putting the little cross. You know, correction meant telling you what's wrong. That's not what Paul means here. The Scriptures not only reveal to us what's wrong inside. When Paul speaks here about correction, marvelously, he uses a, he uses a term that's used outside of the New Testament in the world of medicine when a physician brings healing, when uh, a physician is able to, to correct a, a break or a distortion. So, correction here is not your primary school teacher saying, you're wrong again, Ferguson. It's your physician saying to you, uh, there is healing available to you. And that's the wonderful thing about the Scriptures, isn't it? That's, that's why there's this beautiful balance here. You don't want to go to a physician who tells you there's nothing wrong with you if there's something seriously wrong with you. Nor do you want to go to a physician, do you, who says there's something seriously wrong with you and there's nothing anybody can do about it. The great thing about the Scriptures is that it shows us our sins and our distortions, not in order to destroy us, because, but because it's only when we see our need that we're going to seek the healing that the Scriptures can bring. And this is, this is one of the wonderful things that the Bible does for us. It not only transforms the way we think, but it… Uh, it's like whatever domestic cleaner advertised itself as reaching the places other domestic cleaners don't reach. It gets down into the murky depths of the waters of our soul, and it brings cleansing so that it may also bring training and bring equipping. Uh, the Word of God is a hospital, but it's also a gymnasium, and it's a training ground. In order, says Paul, that the man of God, and of course he's thinking particularly about Timothy, but it applies to all of us, may be competent and equipped for every good work. And by the way, those five things he says here are great questions to ask yourself every time you read a passage of the Bible. What is it teaching me? How is it reproving me? In what ways is it transforming me? What's here that will train me? What's in this passage that will equip me to serve the Lord Jesus Christ? So, there's the inspiration of Scripture. Secondly, there's the function of Scripture. But this is one of the worst chapter breaks in the New Testament here, between chapter 3 and chapter 4. There wasn't a chapter break in Paul's mind. He didn't, he didn't go off for a coffee break between the end of chapter 3 and chapter 4. What he says at the beginning of chapter 4 runs immediately on from what he said in chapter 3. So, he wants to emphasize not only the inspiration of Scripture, 
and the function of Scripture, but now, thirdly, the proclamation of Scripture. And so, he turns to Timothy and he says, so if the Word of God is thus reliable, and if this is what it's for, go and preach it. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, that's what they used to call heavy. This is really serious. What is Timothy to do under these circumstances? He is to go and preach the message of the Scriptures. And what's interesting about this is that he had said in chapter 3, he says in chapter 4, nobody wants to listen to preaching. How many times have you heard that? If you were a preacher, and there's a kind of high statistic in this congregation of preachers, how many people have said to you, the time of preaching has passed, nobody wants to listen to preaching? That's exactly what Paul's saying here. What do you do when nobody wants to listen to preaching? It's, it's, in a way, it's the kind of thing Andy has just been saying to us. People don't want to listen to the gospel. So, what do we do? We speak the gospel, and we discover that there are those who want to listen. And that's what he's saying here. Timothy, there's going to be times when nobody wants to listen to your preaching, so what do you do? Preach. Because that's the only thing that will create the appetite to want to listen to more. And you see the statistics in the visible church of how brief sermons have become, how in many services they have disappeared, and people say the day of preaching has passed, and the real truth of the matter is somebody needs to stand up and say, no, 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 no. The day of your preaching has passed. Your ten-minute sermons are far too long because there isn't an ounce of good news in them. You're hiding the Bible from me. And so, this is in many ways a watchword for us. It's certainly a watchword in our church that in the very day people will not listen to preaching. What do we do? We preach. And what happens? Well, what happens is the church has grown and grown and grown and grown. And incidentally, just in parenthesis, this is why the sermons of those who have these convictions are longer, because there's so much to say that's so interesting. And also, because something is happening. There is the teaching, there is the reproving, there is the transforming, there is the equipping. And certainly the marvelous thing about being on either side of the preaching is the preacher has no idea what's going on. And actually you've no idea, the preacher has no idea <laughs> what's going on. And that's the lovely way God designs it so that it's in the preach, as we place our lives under the ministry of the Word, 
I think that was a little text message from the Apostle Paul saying, that is exactly what I was trying to say (laughs) as we place our lives under the ministry of the Word. Is it not true that when the Word is ministered in the grace of the Holy Spirit, there is an internal dialogue takes place in our soul that takes place nowhere else? There is an unraveling of ourselves. There is a there is a, a comforting of us that takes place nowhere else in all the world. So, preaching and listening to preaching is, is not just a religious exercise. It is an extraordinary experience, and it takes time. It, it, isn't, it isn't that our ministers come to, to give their talks. It's that they they are farmers with the seed of the Word of God, and they spread it around, and it grabs into the good soil, and it begins to bear much fruit. That's what's happening in preaching. Remember years ago in another church, which will remain nameless, there was a hotshot lawyer who was in hot pursuit of a young woman in one of the church families, and he came and visited the church, and for some reason, the family had to call me on Sunday afternoon, and uh, this man said, oh, when you call Sinclair, uh, just, uh, just remind him that about 10 to 12 minutes is the usual length of sermons. Well, I was in my 50s at the time. I thought, I don't need to take this from a hotshot 40-year-old lawyer. So, I said, when you go back to, and mention his name, Ask him when he last won a really important case in the law court on the basis of a 10 to 12-minute speech. And I am arguing an eternal case for eternal souls. And it's not just a matter of conveying information. It's that the words of God from the breath of God by the Spirit of God are being brought out of the Bible that God has given to us, and, and we find ourselves in, as it were, in His physician's office. And all unknown to the preacher, and so wonderfully, all unknown to the person sitting next to you, He's speaking to us and bringing us His Word. And that brings me to the fourth thing. There's the inspiration of Scripture, there's the function of Scripture, there's the proclamation of Scripture. And then, where is all this leading? Well, it's actually leading to the very thing that Paul had mentioned at the beginning, and that is the salvation that's taught in Scripture. Do you notice how he mentioned that to Timothy? He's urging him to press on in verse 14 of chapter 3, as for you, continue what we've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, there's much to say about that, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All of this has Jesus in view. That's what it's all about. From, from almost the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, the whole message is 
salvation in Christ Jesus. It's not just a matter of imparting information. It's a matter of pointing to the person of the Lord Jesus and to Jesus as a Savior. I think that's why he uses that kind of very unusual expression. He says, the sacred Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation. What does he mean by that? It means they not only talk about the salvation you need, it means they teach you how to receive that salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And it's a little word of counsel to us, because it is possible for all kinds of reasons to get interested in the Bible and to read the Bible and not to see what the Bible is ultimately for. The Bible is the book that introduces you to a person, to a Savior, to the Lord Jesus. I say it's possible to make the mistake of reading the Bible, but not seeing the real point of the Bible, because it's a mistake I made when I was a youngster. Some of you know I started reading the Bible when I was nine. I read it for five solid years, every single day, bar five. And I thought that's what it meant to be a Christian, maybe helping old ladies across the road as a kind of super plus addition. And then in my Bible readings, I came to the words of Jesus in John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40, where He says to His contemporaries, you search the Scriptures because in doing that, you think you have eternal life, but you will not come to Me to have life. And I think for the first time in all of those years, it was as though the breath of God could be felt on my face. And I realized Ah, this is how the Bible works. He's speaking to me. He's teaching me. He's rebuking me. He's, he's found out where I've gone wrong. And He's drawing me to heal me, to prepare me, to equip me. So, don't make that mistake. It's a great thing to love the Bible. It's a great thing to love hearing preaching on the Bible. But don't miss the point. The point of the Bible is to bring you to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So let's together look into the Bible to find the Savior and being found by the Savior in the Bible. Trust Him, and then we will begin to trust the Bible. And when it builds us up, we'll begin to have the kind of confidence that Andy Bannister was speaking about earlier that enables us to be witnesses to others. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You today for the way in which You have breathed out Your Word, given us the Scriptures. Thank You for the 
amazingly different ways in which you have brought us to understand the Scriptures, some of us when we were young, some as students, some in midlife, and some even when we have become elderly, and we have heard the voice of Jesus say through His Word, come unto me and rest. Lay down, my weary one, lay down your head upon my breast. And we've been able to sing, I came to Jesus as I was, weary and worn and sad, and found in Him a resting place, and He has made me glad. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.